It is the 90s, and there is time for the Pie Factory Podcast. Anyway, anyway. Um, episode 91? Hmm? 91? Hmm. 91 what? loof balloons. Wait, no, wrong. That, why, she wouldn't even say 91. 91 is not German. Ein und 90. I, I don't know what German for 90 is, but it would be something hmm. like that. Ein hey Siri, what's German for 90? In German, 90 is 90. Oh, I was close. 90. 90. 90. Ein und 90. Or something. I don't know. 90. Hey, you're the one you're the one who's German, not me. And I can count to 20 in German, but only 20. Uh, I haven't learned to count higher than that. Oh, there goes my trackball that I haven't fixed. Oh no, that's the trackball. That's the trackball that I got that was like an extremely limited first edition that doesn't work the way it's supposed to work because it doesn't have a joystick trackball switch on it, even though there's a label for it, but there's no switch inside it for that. Oh, anyway. What model is that one? The CX-80? Well, it's the CX-80, but it's an early edition of it. It's the one that's all black instead okay. of like black on the top. What is the model the that has the, uh, that's, uh, that has the switch normally? CX-80 normally does. Oh, But this okay. one just doesn't happen to have it. So. It has a, has a label for it, but it doesn't have a cutout for it, and it doesn't have a switch on it anywhere. So if I'm going to uh, search for a uh, trackball, I'll go with the CX-80. Yeah, or 22. I thought one of them was better than the other. I think the CX-80 is normally considered better. Okay. But I think either one will work for whatever purpose it happens to be. <sighs> well, so Sean, how are you on this fine evening? It's a fine evening? I, I didn't fine notice. Evening. You didn't I, notice? I don't know how I am. I... I'm pretty freaking exhausted. I've had a really, really rough. I mean, okay, I've had a, a really rough week, but it was nowhere. It's so far, it's nowhere nearly as bad as last week was. Okay, so far, so far, I do have half a day off on Friday, oh, that's so nice. that's something to look forward to. Yeah, go in, grab a donut, and work for four hours. You know, ooh, today and yesterday for the first time in a couple of months, I actually took my bike to work and back. Oh, nice. And yesterday, it wasn't too bad. Uh-huh. Today, it was very bad, and I think I know why. Is that? It's because for the past couple of months, my my bike has been in pretty crappy condition. It was in dire need of a tune-up. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, like, I have a, you know, two different gears, one in each handlebar. The one on the left is, like, three gears. It wouldn't shift into third. It would only go as high as two. Mm-hmm. Until I got the tune-up yesterday, and, I th- and now that it goes into third... It's a little harder to pedal. So. <laughs> so that's probably why it was harder for me. Well, that and it was windy as all mother shut your mouth on the way to work today. Not too bad on the way back. Yeah, I was going to. Man, I'm. Ah, just. Oh, I need a nice nap before I go to bed. I was going to get out on my bicycle yesterday because it was so nice out, but I didn't. I mean, with the extra hour. All too, I know is I'm going to take advantage of all the nice days I possibly can. Yeah, I'm going to need to, too, but. Between now and Midwest Gaming two, two? Classic, <laughs> between now and Midwest Gaming Classic, time's going to be at a premium because of uh, a bunch of different things going on. Kids, you know, yeah. dealing with kids and stuff. So yeah, but this coming Sunday, which will be probably last Sunday by the time this comes out, I'm going to be doing the Wheeling Wheelmen St. Patrick's Day ride up in Wakanda, Illinois, not Wakanda or whatever it is from the movie Black Panther, but Wakanda. Wakanda. 
And apparently the, the Chamber of Commerce has been getting... That is also calls. Wakanda, by the way. Oh, is it? Okay. Yes. Well, apparently... Fact, Pat Thomas Sulo on Channel 9, who does that Man of the People show every Saturday night, he actually did a little segment in Wakanda when that movie came out. Oh, yeah? Yep. It's a nice little town. I kind of like it. But Yeah. Well, that show actually once had a little, had like a quick scene shot at Izzy's Arcade Bar, too. Oh, really? Yes. Is that up that way? That's in Niles. In, it was oh, a different Niles, episode. Niles, Niles. Okay, right, right. Yeah, our friend George Spanos, the Hands of Fate, uh, like, works on the machines up there. Uh, that kills me. So, I've been playing some games on my uh, Sega Saturn. Uh, been, Ooh. Uh, first of all, thank you to uh, was it Steve Steiner, who sent me the game Worms. <laughs> I got Worms from oh. Steve Steiner uh, ah. for the Sega Saturn and a Panzer Dragoon 1 uh, sample disc, which some reason isn't working, but uh, Worms works fine. I'm just going to have to figure out how to play the game. I remember when Worms was out on the Amiga, like the Amiga magazines were just raving about it and I never got a chance to play it. Yeah, well, this is the first time I've ever played it, and I think it was out on the ST, and it was out on like the Genesis and stuff too. It was uh, it was a huge franchise for a while, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. But uh, I also have Tempest 2000 on my Saturn, and I have uh, a Panzer Dragoon Zwei, which Zwei is German for two. It's a Japanese game. Zwei. And Zwei. I don't know. Zwei. Zwei. So I've been playing those. Panzer Dragoon Zwei is really fun. I really like that game a lot. And um, basically you're on a dragon and you're shooting things down. And sometimes you're flying, sometimes you're running around the ground. And uh, it's an on-rail shooter, but you do have opportunities to change your path. And, uh, you know, there are two paths you can go by, but in the long run, there's still time yeah, to change yeah, the road yeah. run. Um, but, uh, so I've been playing that in, uh, a little bit and, um, yeah, having a, having a decent time with the Saturn. I'm hoping to pick up a few things at the Midwest Gaming Classic. Uh, I'll actually probably have a little money to spend this time. So, uh, that'll be good. Ooh, nice. And, uh, yeah. So, um, I haven't really I know been playing this is the, a lot the wrong much. attitude, but I'm just looking at Midwest Gaming Classic as just a getaway as nothing more. I mean, yeah, I'd love to meet people yeah. and see what's going on and everything, it's a mini but to vacation. me, it's more like, it's, well, well, maybe not it's a vacation, mini vacation but. and it's a mini vacation right before my wife and I are actually taking a, a real vacation. And I have <laughs> basically, I'm going home from Milwaukee time. and then we're turning around right away and going to uh, Midway. So from Midwest Gaming Classic to Midway Airport. So, yeah. I wonder what it would have been if you guys had just flown right out of uh, Mitchell. General Mitchell. Even the name says, is that a beer? <laughs> we also... Uh, I met you over the weekend as well. A uh, friend of the show uh, had a party, uh, a gaming Wait, party. We, dude, we, we met like 27 years ago. Well, we're at, but we we're, met again at the party. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, we forgot each other, yeah. so yeah. I know you. I know you. And uh, I brought along... You my... host that one podcast with me. Yes. And another one without me. Yes. Yeah, I'm actually uh, co-hosting a podcast called The Pretentious Podcast with uh, Kevin Zerb, or the Zerbinator as he is known. And uh, the first episode, well, not the first, uh, it's been on hiatus for quite a while, like five, six years. But uh, it's uh, episode 16, which will be the first one with me, should be out within the next week or two. Uh, he's uh, editing it as we speak. And um, I'm just going to say right off, right here that... Uh, Kevin is actually awakening a creative spark in me. So uh, 
That's Whoa. always a good thing. Uh, so what is what is the uh, podcast about? I it's about I basically about it current events, things in the news. But Kevin uh, kind of coached me into uh, doing an impersonation I never knew I could do before. And oh. it turned out freaking hilarious. And I'm going to be doing this impersonation more. But I'm not going to do it on this show. You'll have to listen to Pretentious Podcast here. Ah. So uh, we had a lot of fun. And uh, just so look out for that. And look out for what? Snakes? Watch out for snakes. Actually, worms, because I'm probably going to be playing that after a while. Oh, but, okay. Um, so Envy. When is the next episode of uh, Autobiography of a Schnook coming out? I am targeting it March 18th because it's actually an anniversary of something I will be discussing. Ah, uh, I think I know what that anniversary is. It's a little segment that I call Death of the Mad Russian. Death of the Mad Russian. Yeah. Okay. It's going to have a music for Schnooks segment that was going to be in chapter six, but due to uh, certain recent events, it's postponed until chapter seven. So, Is this a uh, going to have a special guest? No, you already did that one, didn't you? I already did that what one. What am I thinking of? Dolph? 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 I have no idea what a Dolph is. It just sounded good out of my head. <sighs> it's a combination oh, and, uh, of Doe and Oaf. Uh, we, oh, you and did you know this? Uh, you and I were on the currently most recent episode of uh, Please Stand By. No, we were? Yeah, which is also a Kevin Zerb podcast. It's a Zerbinator Land production. Yep, yes. a Zerbinator Land, yep. How many podcasts does that make that he does now? Because um, he's got that, he's got... Uh, pretentious. Uh, uh, pretentious uh, podcast, uh, Overthinking. Over, yeah, Overthinking, which I, he hasn't done one of those in a while, I don't think. No, he hasn't, actually. Uh, unless he's kind of folding that. Well, no, because that's a different thing where they tackle one topic. Um, yeah. And that, that's a good podcast. I like that one a lot. I know he does more. And then on top of it, he's recording an album. So yep. I love that track he played on the, uh, the at the end of uh, Please Stand By. That was a good track. I was quite impressed. Had a... Uh, had an 80s disco sort of synth feel to it, maybe new wave. And uh, I enjoyed it. I, I really It just made it. me jealous. What? That he has talent? Because he can, well, that he has talent in that he actually gets off his ass and records this stuff. I have about 20 different unfinished songs, including the Happy L, the theme from our podcast, by the way. That is not a finished piece of, of music. Oh, really? Yeah. That's just, I just took what was already recorded and edited it down. No kidding. It off to Hyde. Yeah. That, in fact, if you were to break into my hard drive right now and break into Hyde's hard drive, I imagine the name of the file is actually Happy L short version. Really? Yeah. There's a whole bridge missing that I didn't finish yet. You know what? You should see if uh, Andy Ryerson will do a metal version of it for us. He already did. Did he? I thought Remember he just put uh, tracks. I thought he just did a mashup. No, it was a completely, it was basically Happy L, like complete with, uh, Huh. Yeah, that time we were on we were on their show on yeah. uh, Super Podcast Brothers. Oh, I have to listen to it again. Yeah, you have to. It's been a while since they put a show out. Yeah. So. Oh, that's something I have to add now because I I told you before that I I designated myself the official statistician of Pie Factory Podcast. Uh huh. One of the things I'm keeping statistics of is things that you say that you'll have to do just so we uh -huh. can go back and see if you ever actually did them. Okay. Do you have an exact number? I don't have an exact number yet because I haven't gone through all the episodes uh -huh. yet, but I can go through, let, let me see, let me pull up my notes here. Let's see. One of the things you'll have to do, this is going back to episode 27. You'll have to look for a picture of Pope John Paul II playing Satan's Hollow. I have been looking for that and I still haven't found it. Ah, 
I know I saw and, it um, before. Let's see what else. Uh, oh, I wonder if that's in an issue of Joystick. Oh, I'll have to check. Oh, damn it. Now I have to say it. <laughs> and let's see. Uh, as per episode 58, a minute and 27 seconds into the episode, you mentioned that you'll have to try a Liney's Watermelon Shandy. Uh, did I? I think I did, and I was a little bit disappointed with it. Ah, really? Yeah, I'm pretty and sure I epi- did. And episode 75, you said you have to look for the Super Pac-Man boot-up screen that mentions Mappy hardware. So those are just a few examples. Yeah. I'll have to hear that one in context. So we're going to have like a spreadsheet full of all kinds of statistics, such as the first episode that Hyde St. Pierre did for us, which I think was actually episode one. Not episode zero, but episode one. I know Mel Behohe did one for us. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder what he's doing these days. Well, I don't know. You have his number. Why don't you like call him? Call him right now. Get him live on the show. Nah, probably not a good idea right now because he is uh, yeah. he is an irritable man. Oh, that that sucks. Um, man, I am just so out of things to say. I, well, I really we am. haven't I, talked I have. a whole lot about the party though. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell tell yeah, us about. But, tell, uh, tell the so uh, there were our a lot of people it. there. I broke uh, I broke uh, Keith's uh, Kroll machine. Uh, actually, I didn't. It looks like a wire was uh, coming loose anyway, but. Uh, I was so scared that I broke it, but, uh, you brought a few things along. Oh, and, uh, first of all, um, I think you have to say thank you to somebody about something that you're seeing. Oh, yes. Thank you to Bobby Idod Moore for, uh, the mystery Vectrex cartridge. Um, I'm so out of it. I don't even remember what was on it. I did recognize both titles because they're on the Sean Kelly multi-cart. And then, of course, you brought along, well, I brought along my Sega Master System uh, EverDrive, and we played a few games on that, or I showed a few people, but uh, you- It was fascinating. I gotta say, I was really impressed with what was on that thing. Really? So much of that stuff looked like 16-bit, you know? Yeah, well, it was really good. I really like that one game, uh, it was a homebrew, Silver Valley is really good. I was playing it for an hour one time, and I don't remember why I quit. I think I got stuck somewhere, or I ran out of continues or something. I don't remember what it was, but uh, that's a fun game. Paperboy was... Uh, I, li- I like Paperboy on that. That was really well done. It makes one of us. Well. Interesting that they use kind of Moon Patrol music yeah, in that one. Yeah, you pointed that out in the, uh, the Paperboy episode. Oh, you've been keeping stats, too. Yeah, I do remember a few things, just not the fact that I have to take the garbage out tomorrow morning. You brought over a few things. You brought over Ricky and Vicky. Yes. And I uh, got to play that for a while. That's a, a game. It's a homebrew for the Atari 7800 that came out of nowhere, which I'm sh- certain there's going to be a certain podcast revival coming up sometime in the near future talking about it. Might be. I don't know. We'll have to find out. I'm excited to find out. And The thing is, I don't know if it's technically a homebrew because it was an actual, well, kind of independent software house that did it, and they had deadlines and everything. Well... The thing is, it's not obviously not an official Atari release, and they had to, they created some new hardware for the game, uh, some yeah. new sound hardware for it. And, uh, yeah, which makes me think, why are so many 7800 homebrew developers so tied to the pokey if they want good sound when they can just use a different sound chip? That's true. That's something you don't really think about too much because they, they did purposely design it. Well, they, while they should have designed it with the Pokey on board, they at least had the foresight to make it to where it could transfer audio and stuff through the uh, through the cartridge port. You know, have the cartridges accept the yeah. audio chip. And yeah, we're gonna have to link Vicky, Ricky, and Vicky in the show notes. By the way, 
And one thing that uh, one of the developers of Ricky and Vicky said is that sales of the Windows version is kind of going to determine future 7800 development. Interesting. Which is weird because the Windows version is a lot cheaper. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's, it's, it's virtually identical to the 7800 version of it. And I'm saying that because that's a good thing because the 7800 version is just absolutely mind-blowing. It is Everything insane. about it. It is insane how well done this game is. The game itself, the cartridge, yeah, uh, the, the, packaging. the packaging. Did you see all the stuff that it comes with? I saw that. That was amazing. That's it is amazing. They spared no expense on this game, and it came out of the middle of nowhere. He's like, "Hey, we got a game coming out." Boom. Nobody knew this was even being worked on. There was no hints or no nothing. Nope. And it, it took four years too. Yeah. For or at least, and not probably even more than that because the developer said the first build was four years prior, yeah. which meant that it had already been worked on. And the most interesting thing, and I'm not going to say specifically what, but there is one word that is conspicuously absent from everything in that whole package. The cartridge, the manual, everything. The box, there's one word missing, and I'm not going to say what it is. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, I brought that. Um, I brought my Vectrex, of course. Mm Mm-hmm. Why did I say, of course, it made it sound like I wouldn't have, I don't know. I just might bring that to Midwest Gaming Classic. Maybe not have it out at our table. Just something to do in your room? Something to do in my room. And you know, maybe if like we, someone wants to have some kind of Vectrex thing. Well, then again, guys, games and beer, they, their Vectrex stuff will, I, it'll always, always top anything I could possibly offer. Oh yeah. I hope they bring those two giant things with them again this oh, year. Gosh, oh gosh, the, the arcade Vectrex. They have the, uh, they had the they had two different arcade Vectrexes, arcade-style vector Vectrices, as it were. One that has uh, all the games inside it, and you pick a game from a menu, and not only does it play the game, but it also rolls the appropriate overlay on the screen. That's incredible. Yeah, and Tom, I th- Tom told me, I think, what, three, two or three months it took him to do that? And then they had another Vectrex arcade-style machine that was full color, built in full color. That not was even incredible. overlays. And Tom told me the guy who did that took a day to do that. <laughs> Almost makes me wonder if maybe there was some color code in the games already. The only game they had available to play on that at the time was Mindstorm, which is the built in. Oh, like, okay. Maybe there was the only, ve- maybe there was a version of Mindstorm because there was talk about them building a color Vectrex, the, the GCE. Ah, huh. Could be. Could be. Yeah, and Mindstorm, of course, is the built-in game when you turn on the console. I always get GCE and GCC confused. Hey, I used to do the same thing until you corrected me. Yeah. It's easy mistake to make. We met Keith's next-door neighbor, mm-hmm. and uh, for the second time, poor guy had rotator cuff surgery, so he couldn't really do a lot. His son brought over some homemade popcorn. That was amazing. Well, that was great. One thing we forgot to mention about Ricky and Vicky is uh, you popped it in the, the 7800, and I played it for a little bit, and it's, it is really amazing. It's fantastic. But what happened was, is a couple of the, the little kids uh, picked yes. up the controllers and were playing that game and loved it. They are playing a two-player game. Yeah. And uh, so the only problem the only problem with the game is uh, we only had pain lane controllers. Yeah, yeah. And those are really hard to do anything like that with. But... Uh, I, it's definitely a title I'm going to have to get a hold of. That's for yeah, certain. I, I wish I would have realized that Keith only had the pain lines because I would have brought over a couple of controllers. I should have brought my pain uh, line. I should have brought a couple over just to test. Yeah, or at the very least the uh, the Seagull 78, so he could hook up a Genesis controller. 
Right. Well, I need to test that too. I think that might have gone out on me. I think I might not. It might not have. But did you see this on Atari Age in the 7800 forum? Um, I've talked about the 8-bit dough controller that I bought. It's a Bluetooth controller and it looks Indeed. like the NES, whatever. And uh, they make a Bluetooth dongle for uh, different consoles for the NES, the SNES, and the Genesis. And from what I understand, it could be wrong on this. Use if you plug in the Genesis Bluetooth dongle into the Ed Ladin Seagull 78, you can use that thing as a Bluetooth controller on the 7800. No way! And I want to get the dongle just to try this. Oh, man, That would be freaking awesome. Twood. And um, I have a Genesis here, too, and it would work with that as well. So there you go. I've I've got to try that. I don't know how much the dongles are. I don't think they're that expensive. I might have to get a new... Uh, a new 8-bit dough controller, though, um, to work with it. But uh, this is a thread I'm definitely going to keep an eye on and uh, try to do it once uh, once I hear some sort of definitive information on it. But so far, it's looking promising. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, a wireless controller for the 7800. What a world we live in. Yep. I have nothing further to say about that. I don't that. either. Because I'm just, oh, I am just so not talky tonight. I don't know if we, do we have any addenda in Arata? I don't think we do. I don't think so, no. Uh, let's see, I already thanked Steve Steiner. Uh, I don't think there's anything on the thread on Atari Age. So. Oh, there's one thing I, I do want to mention. It's not an Adena or an Arata, but I don't think we mentioned it yet, but there's a there's a new 80s arcade podcast Oh, that launched actually quite a while ago. It's only oh. seven episodes in. It's called 80s, 80s Arcade, arcade Podcast, podcast yes. hosted by uh, Bob Johnson, I think. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I yes. actually have listened to a few episodes, so... In fact, he messaged either you or either like one or both of us and said, hey, I don't know if you remember, but I told you guys a long time ago that I'm going to start up my own 80s arcade podcast. Well, I finally did it. (laughs) And Uh, thanks for the shout out, Bob. uh, Oh, yes, definitely. Oh, and one thing we forgot to mention, um, Into the Vertical Blank, uh, their Christmas I didn't forget to mention that. I just plain refused to mention it. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. Uh, but I think they get, they gave us a shout out on their Christmas episode. Oh, and why don't I remember that? I listen. It I was in it. their. I, I'm pretty. I I'm pretty sure I heard them now giving I us a shout out. Well, I mean, they've been not, they have been supporters of us though, so it's not surprising. Yeah, I totally forgot to shout back at them. Hey guys, <laughs> podcast for the hard of hearing. Our top yeah. story tonight. Our top story tonight. <laughs> Ah, old Saturday Night Live jokes go over so well. So, yeah, yeah I think uh, we should probably just move right into tonight's topic du jour. Ooh, topic tonight's du, topic du jour. Du jour. Ooh, that topic, means of the day, by the way. Topic du week. Topic du episode. Of the, the, the bye week or fortnight, I guess, because we're like... I don't play Fortnite. Um, Neither do I, but you know what I have been playing? Well, I already told you this, but I've been try- I've been playing Cuphead, or at least I've been trying to. Oh, you haven't mentioned I cannot, it. I cannot get past the first run and gun, and I've been trying for over a week. The first run and gun. Um, I've gotten past that. It's I mean, the I mean, uh, second one, third one, I haven't been able to get past. Oh, I'm just glad. That I haven't played it in a while. The, the game is beautiful to look at. It and is. And it, it is fun, but the difficulty is insane. It's it, easily the best looking game I've ever seen in my life, but the difficulty is just way out there. Ah. I did see somebody built a uh, arcade, uh, a Cuphead arcade cabinet. 
and uh, they have the game in it, and you can play it. So I thought that was kind of neat. Did you know? I did. So, Sean. So, hi. Jimmy G. How are you? Hi. We're, as people know, we're not talking about a game tonight. Are you sure? Are you sure people know that? What about first-time <laughs> listeners? <laughs> Excuse me. Well, first-time listeners should have listened to us last time. Uh, and then they would know we're not talking about a game tonight. Rather, we haven't talked. We haven't done a topic like this in a while. Uh, we did a, a topic about uh, you know our memories of the twenty six hundred. We had Ferg as a guest, and we yeah. did a. I believe we. He did, wasn't a guest on that one, though. No, he wasn't. He was on uh, which one was that? Well, see, he was guest on our on our revisiting the fives episode. Was, yes, was he, he was on that one. He was on our revisiting the fives. Uh, we had well, we me and you did the twenty six hundred one. Uh, then we yeah, had, we didn't want it to be a 2600 one. We were just going to talk about all the consoles we knew that we grew up with. Right, but, but you know, we sp- that's, yeah. that, that was a uh, lesson in futility. Yep. <laughs> well, every episode of this podcast. Every isn't. episode, yeah. But then we had um, Phil, the No Swear Gamer, on for our 7800 vert one. And I believe he, we had him on for our Genesis one, didn't we? Yes, we did. Yes, we and, did. Uh, but we, we haven't done an episode in a while where we talked about a console. And I'm thinking about it, well... You have a little experience with the Super Nintendo. I have a little bit more, but to be perfectly you have a honest, lot more than I do. But to be perfectly honest, I don't really remember a whole lot about my ownership of one, other than I beat Super Metroid and Super Mario World. And those are I played two games on the sneeze in my life. I played a few more than that, but those are the two that I beat. I think I beat Legend of Zelda: Link to the Past as well, but I borrowed that one. I never owned it. But I'm like thinking, I don't think that would be a really good episode for us because we don't have the equal experience with that sort of thing. And then you and I got talking, and we were like, you know what? We each had a 16-bit computer. You had the Commodore Amiga, and I had the Atari ST. And the histories of the two machines are really very closely intertwined. Yeah. And it's insane how intertwined the the, the stories are. And uh, for people that know the histories of it, if uh, the Tremels hadn't bought Atari... Uh, Atari probably would have come out with the Amiga and Commodore probably would have come out with the ST, but because, you know, of all that nonsense, uh, the fates twisted. And so Commodore got the Amiga and Atari got the ST. So, yeah, in fact, there's some hidden messages on uh, Amiga Workbench 1.2, I believe, mm -hmm. to that regard. I don't remember exactly what you have to do in this. I got in the Amiga way after this was a thing, but for operating system 1.2, if you held down like a certain number of keys and you did some mouse clicking and you ejected a disc at the same time, there was a message that flashed briefly that said something like the Amiga, we made it great. They f***ed it up. <laughs> And the thing is that the way that it was programmed in there, you couldn't get a screen capture of it. Really? Yeah. And the best way to do that was to have as many apps running as you could to slow the processor down so you could see it a little better. Uh-huh. And yeah. And when 1.3 came out, which is a very commonly used operating system, they changed the message to, we made Amiga great, only the best, or something like that. Oh, they ruined it. Yeah, but hey. The Atari ST had kind of a hidden thing in it too. Oh, yes, yes. In the uh in the code for the uh for the, the ASCII code for the for the keys, there are four specific objects using control codes. If you put them in like a square pattern, uh upper left, upper right, lower left, lower right, it was the face of J.R. Bob Dobbs. Yep. And interesting, I was uh, looking at um 
I'm not looking up, but I was listening. I, I am on my mission to listen to every episode of the Antic podcast. And I came across one where it, uh, a guy was, he did some 8-bit Atari stuff, but he also did some uh, Atari ST stuff. And um, he is the guy that put the uh, J.R. Bob Dobbs in the Atari ST character set, but he also worked on the arcade game Kroll, which also yes. has J.R. Bob Dobbs on it. Uh, the guy's name was Matt Householder. And uh, so, yeah, so I, I don't know if he is actually the one who put the Easter egg in the arcade crawl, but he put it in the uh, the character set on the ST, so he has to be the culprit. The evidence is very likely in that goes that direction. So that was, uh, I thought that was interesting. I, I've said it before, but uh, the Antic is a great podcast. Not every episode of the interviews is great. But uh, a lot of these stories, some of these uh, people that used to work with Atari or even just program stuff for Atari, heck, they even talked to a few people that were uh, pirates and crackers really, on there. And yeah. uh, they're interesting stories. And um, I urge everyone to give, just go back and choose a random episode. You'll find something good on there. I've uh, talked about the Montezuma's Revenge episode. That was really good. And there was one where they talked to Dave Tour, who... Uh, who had a lot to do with uh, some of the arcade uh, games as well. So yeah, listen to some back episodes of that one. But so Lincoln's on us. Lincoln's on us. So the the histories of these two machines are very intertwined like I was saying, but uh, Sean, I'm interested. How did you get into what what prompted you to get an Amiga? My first computer was a Commodore 64, which I actually got pretty late in the game. It was 1988 when it uh, basically fell on me when I was uh, when I graduated from eighth grade, it was a present. I got a Commodore 64 C. And so my natural instinct of course, was to stay with the Commodore line and a friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours, our friend, Andy actually was preaching high and low about how wonderful the Amiga was and how much better it was than the IBM compatibles, how much better it was than the Mac Mm -hmm. and how smoothly it multitasked and everything. And he finally got an Amiga 500 and This was when I was still in high school, and I remember one night in uh, homecoming week, one of the festivities, he actually borrowed a huge projection screen TV from the school Uh and had his Amiga 500 set up with it, constantly playing a demo version of Pinball Dreams, and I was just (laughs) watching that, and I was just flipping out. I was like, yeah, I need one of these, and uh, in 1993... There were three new Amigas that came out, the Amiga 600, the Amiga 1200, and the 4000. And the 4000 and the 12, well, and the CD32, now that I think about it. And the thing about all of those models, except the 600, was that those three models, CD32, 1200, and 4000, had AGA graphics, the latest Amiga graphics hardware. It was called Advanced Graphics Architecture. For the longest time, the Amiga could display from a palette of 4,096 colors. And the thing about AGA, I think that cranked up the color number to 256,000 or something to that effect. So that was a huge deal. And people were wondering, what's the point of the Amiga 600 if there's a 1,200 that's so much better? Mm -hmm. But I ended up getting the 600 because it was cheap. It was only 300 bucks. And it was really, really small. And I liked that. I I really liked that a lot. It was very, in fact, when I worked for the football team at the college, I actually would pack my Amiga 600 in my suitcase and hook it up in the hotel rooms on road trips. (laughs) We'd play uh, pinball fantasies, uh, 
oh, what what's that one football game? Uh, Tom Landry strategy football. I just loved it. And the, the big seller for me was the sound because mm-hmm. I'm a sound person and it has built in stereo sound with built in audio outputs, RCA outputs. So you could plug it into anything and that did it for me. And I remember when I got the 600, when it arrived, I connected it. Keep in mind that I had been used to the Commodore 64. Then when I got the 600, it came with, uh, a couple of chintzy like art and word processing programs that no one ever used. And three games. It came with uh, Myth, Oops. not Mist, but Myth. Myth, I, I know, I've heard of that one. Shadow of the Beast three, and RoboCop three. And the first thing I tried, I booted up with RoboCop three, and just the opening screen knocked me on my ass. And I'm like, yeah, this was a good purchase. And that Amiga six hundred had a built-in floppy drive mm-hmm. and a megabyte of memory. Yeah. Hmm. Back in my day, <laughs> I was too cheap slash too poor to get a hard drive with it. Yeah, uh, I hear you on that one. Eventually, I did get a hard drive. I saw that, uh, was it, I think it was 10X. They're based out of uh, Mishawaka, Indiana. Okay. They had a special on hard drives. So it's like, ooh, let me get that 40 megabyte hard drive. So I placed the order. They called me back and they said, yeah, we're out of the 40 megabytes. I said, okay, then give me the 85 megabyte hard drives. It'll take me forever to fill that one up. But hey, (laughs) yeah. And when I got the 85 megabyte hard drive, I plugged it, I put it inside, it was an IDE drive. I heard it start up, I heard grinding and everything, but computer wouldn't recognize it. Hmm. I called 10X, I said, you, you gave me a bum hard drive, it's not being recognized. Like, and the, the tech guy was like, wait a minute, do this. Get the system information about your Amiga. Does the operating system version end with anything other than a 5 or a 0? And I looked and it was like uh, OS... 2.05.0000009 or something or something like that. I don't remember what. And the guy said, aha, here's the problem. The kickstart ROMs in your computer. Kickstart was basically what powered the Amiga, what made it able to boot. You had to have kickstart. The very first Amiga, the, the Amiga 1000, kickstart was on a separate floppy disk. Mm-hmm. But later on with the later Amigas, like the 2000, the 500 and everything above that, there were socketed ROM chips. You just plug them in. The guy said, we need to send you a new set of kickstart ROMs. And so they did. And I popped out the old ones, put in the new ones. And sure enough, they recognized the hard drive. So there we go. Did they send you the ROMs for free? Well, yeah, yeah. They were supposed to include it with the purchase of the hard drive. But ah, they didn't I, realize that I, I had a 600 that didn't. Because re- the versions that Commodore put out that did not ship with the hard drive they were not enabled for the hard drive. Ah. You either had to get the ROMs or you had to get the little file that is on the ROMs from someone else and manually Flash include them in the, boot se- in the boot sequence. Oh, I gotcha. Right. Okay. I was wondering, because that was one thing I don't like about this kind of generation is the ROMs being, or the uh, the OS being in, uh, in ROM, because it makes it harder to... If there's an update to to update them, I don't. I've never had to update the uh, the ROMs in my uh, my Atari ST, yeah. so I don't know if they were socketed or not. So, well, the the operating system itself was on floppy disks, and what starting from Amiga operating system three point five CDs, but it was just basically the boot code that was on a oh a oh oh kind of the boot sector sort of thing. Yeah, oh, yeah, kind of. Okay, gotcha. So Kickstarter is more of like your boot sector. 
sort of. Kind of, sort of. Yeah, your master boot record sort of thing. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Okay. I was always wondering what the difference between the OS and the the Kickstart was. I never really understood that. While we're talking about that, one thing that I do have to say that was kind of a pain in the ass about the Amiga was that your Amiga could literally be too advanced to run some (laughs) software. There were a lot of older games that I couldn't play because my computer was too advanced. It was too smart. So they had little software utilities. Like one of the famous ones was Degrader, where you could actually have it pretend you only have like 256 kilobytes of RAM. You know what? Or, I laugh, but that's actually a problem still. Um, you can't, that is true. You can't play like older Windows or DOS games on newer versions of Windows because it could be because it's uh, the newer versions of Windows are more technically whatever, not backwards compatible with a lot of games. Yeah. Yeah, and on the, on the Amiga, if your kickstart was too new, no amount of degrading could do anything. You had to artificially boot it into a different kickstart, either with a different set of ROM chips or by loading it off a floppy drive, which a lot of people did. In fact, they made, for many of the models, they made a special kickstart switcher, so you could just flip a switch and it would load a certain kickstart. I never did get one of those. I think the Atari ST had something like that, too. It was an aftermarket yeah. thing, but I'm pretty sure it did. But yeah, I mean, Mac, Mac is like that now too, but only because there are three different generations of Macs. The first ones that came out using the Motorola 68000 series, which is what the Amiga used. Mm-hmm. And then they, the, the PowerPC ones later. Then the PowerPC, which also um, some Amigas used. In fact, if you were to get a brand spanking new current generation Amiga now, it w- it'll run on a PowerPC. And right now, Macs run on the same Intel processors that PCs run off of. So basically, if you have a Mac, you basically have a super high-powered PC. Interesting. So, you might be wondering how I got into the Atari ST. I'm not wondering in the least, because I don't care about the Atari ST. Oh, no, there's one thing that Atari ST has that is a definite advantage over the Amiga by a long shot. Something built in that the Amigas or any other computer, as far as I know, any other home computer never had built in. MIDI. MIDI. And a lot of bands used it. I know Tangerine, Tangerine yep. Dream did, uh, Fleetwood Mac did. Uh, I know there's others I can't think of off the top of my head. I saw a video on uh, YouTube just the other day with uh, John Anderson of Yes playing a keyboard on an Atari ST. No, no, not a keyboard. Huh. He was playing the, uh, what was that instrument? Um, uh, the Hots Box, which was an instrument that Jimmy, Jimmy Hots, I think the guy's name is, who invented as an easy instrument for people, digital instrument for people to use. And it was... Uh, closely tied to the Atari ST, and I think Atari actually marketed it, and uh, I've been curious about that ever since I heard about it, but I've never seen one or anything. But uh, but as far as the Atari ST goes, the main reason I wanted an Atari ST is I had a, had a friend who operated a BBS in Joliet. Now, Joliet, Illinois, was surprisingly, when it comes to BBSs, a pretty big Atari town. Really? We had, um, well, there was a sack base, was an Atari. Uh, the bullpen oh, was Atari. Alcatraz was an Atari. I want to think there was another one. I can't think of it off the top of my head. I do know the bullpen was Atari 8-bit, and Alcatraz was on the Atari ST. I can't remember what SAC base was. I want to think SAC base was an Atari ST as well. Was SAC base Trader Vic's? Um... No, SAC base was uh, General Ripper. Oh, right, The right, late, okay. great General Ripper, R.I.P. Yes. Yes. Um, that was sad we found out he passed away, but he was uh, he was probably the oldest of all the sysops in the Joliet area. He was a former member of the Joliet Police Force as well, but uh, oh, really? I liked I him. He was a nice guy. I've been to, I was at his house a couple of times. So 
what happened is one day I went over to the warden's place because uh, at that time I was on the Coleco Adam and you know like people were like oh it's not a real computer <laughs> and I'm like well you know what I can get on CompuServe and on BBSs and it has all of this that I can do with it so as far as I'm concerned it's a real computer you know f you guys but um, <laughs> what happened was I went over to his place and saw what the Atari ST could do and I'm like holy crap I'm like this is an amazing system. And so it's like I was looking for like a, a refurb one, and I found one at a place in Texas. I don't remember how much I spent on it. I want to think four hundred dollars, might have been less, but uh, I, I like I said, I don't remember. It was a long time ago, and they shipped it to me, and I got it home, and I plugged it in, and no games, no nothing, and I was just like having so much damn fun. <laughs> just, wow, a graphic interface, and look at this, and you can click things, and I think just within a few days of me getting it, I was able to get a hold of some <clears throat> software and um, play some games on it, and um, I just loved what it could do. Uh, the only real problem I had, and, and yeah, it kind of, you know, there was the, this is back with the the days of everybody was like trying to one-up everybody on their computers and consoles. Oh, the Amiga can do this, 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 and this. And oh, the ColecoVision is so much better than your game console and whatever. And, you know, now we say, you know what, whatever you're happy with, you know, that's fine. You know, yep, but yep. back then it was like all of a kind of a rite of passage, these uh, tech wars, <laughs> if you will. And uh, it was it was what us nerds did instead of, you know, trying to make the touchdown in the big game. We were trying to one-up other people with our with our hardware and um that's what she said but um so i, I was eventually got a lot of games and uh, the one thing with the atari st that i didn't that always mystified me is that it had a cartridge port but it was really never used for anything i only ever saw two things that used it and one of them was i had a sound digitizer called digisound which plugged into that thing and you had just needed a cable to hook up to your like walkman or whatever and you could make sound files and i did that i had no reason to do it i just thought it was cool and there was that, and then I saw somebody had, like, a three-dimensional wireframe helicopter, RC helicopter simulator. But the cool thing with this RC helicopter game was, is it actually used real radio-controlled helicopter control that plugged into the cartridge port. I know there were other things, but it was it was really underused, and I think what happened was it didn't really have uh, the uh, throughput, I guess, to be able to handle, like, big, complicated games, which is a shame, because... It's a it's something that could have been counted as an advantage of the STA had it been used, but you know there you go with that. Speaking of ports that were never used, the Amiga twelve hundred, which I never had, and in retro, if I had known what I knew now, mm -hmm. I would have told my twenty year old, my nineteen year old self, get the twelve hundred, just invest the extra hundred bucks and get the twelve hundred. The Amigas that were all in ones that had the keyboard, the uh, CPU all in the same box, like the 500, the 600, and the 1200. Well, those were the only three, actually. They didn't have battery-backed clocks. Yeah. You actually had to set the, the clock every time you started up if you wanted the time to be accurate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the Amiga 1200 had a clock port, so you could actually add a clock to it. I think somebody released right to the, the clock chip for the Atari ST, but uh, yeah. it's something you had to install. But. but here's the thing, though. Just about any accelerator made for Amiga has a battery back clock on it. Uh -huh. So keeping that in mind, somebody figured out that you could put just about any kind of peripheral on the clock port. So there were sound cards that people made that you plug into the clown, po clown, the hmm. 
clock port, mm-hmm. uh, graphics cards. There are, there are all kinds of devices that hardware developers made that were specifically made for the clock port. So you could free up other ports for doing whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. And I remember one of the Amiga magazines, I think one of the European Amiga magazines actually reviewed an actual system clock that goes into the clock port. Oh, The author said, I'm shocked by this. The last thing you would expect on the Amiga clock port is an actual clock. I guess it's kind of like how, what's one thing you never find in a glove compartment? Gloves. <laughs> yeah. You never see a glove in a glove compartment. Nope. I'm going to have to change that. Uh, Atari, like Commodore with the Amiga, Atari had a, multiple different versions of the ST. The first one was just like the ST. They were going to come out with like a, like a 256 ST something. I don't remember the number, but it was like had too little memory. So they came up. No, or was that was the original one? I don't remember. But the number after ST basically told you how much memory was in it. Like the 520 had 512K. The 1040 had a megabyte of memory in, in it as well. Um, but the first one was it had a external floppy drive and you had to load the OS you know, from floppy, just like uh, you had to load the Kickstarter on the Amiga. Then they put the the operating system on ROMs. Now, the operating system, it was uh, TOS, which stands for the operating system. Some pe- oh, okay. Some people think it stands for a Tremiel operating system, but it stands I for I thought it stood the, for tape operating system, which made me wonder, wait, nope, they didn't have a the tape The operating drive. system. And it used digital research, or as they used to be known, intergalactic digital research, gem operating system, which I, I loved the operating system on the ST, and I have, there was a project a while back called Open Gem, and I had experimented with that on my Windows computers, but I don't know what happened to that. I haven't followed up on it in a while. But the model I got was the 520STFM. Now, they had the 520STF, which uh, I believe had the floppy drive mounted inside. Then the FM, which had the floppy drive and um, an RF modulator built into it. Uh, previous models, you could only work with a monitor. But uh, later on, they just you know, put the, freq- the modulator in there. Now, the very first model of the Atari ST had the joystick ports on the side. You know, one for your mouse and one for your joystick. But yeah. for some reason, with starting with the FM, they put them under the keyboard. You had to lift the whole computer up to plug them in. And because of that, because of where they were located, it was quite frequent, and I had this problem too, that the solder joints that held the DB9 ports in, would uh, break. the solder joint would break loose. And so uh. it would like intermittently like lose connection. Workaround I had was just a... Sh- fold up a piece of cardboard and put it in there to, to, to force it down a little bit to make connection, but I should have gone in there and reflowed the uh, the solder joint, but I never did that. Later on, I did get a 520 uh, from Bumpus from uh, Bullpen fame, uh, and he had a 20 megabyte hard drive with his from ICD Company in uh, Rockford, Illinois. That's actually the most recent episode of uh, the Antic podcast I listened to was about ICD, and they interviewed the guy that used to be part of that. He, they did a lot of stuff for the Atari 8-bits as well. They were in business up until about 10 years ago, I think. I don't remember really? what they were doing. but uh, So that was a that was an interesting listen to. Again, link in the show notes. So there was that, and it was fun to put all sorts of stuff on there, like games that you didn't have to have a boot sector for. or did you, Well, that you didn't have to boot right from the floppy drive. Uh, now, right. that particular model... I did have to use the external floppy drive as well, but that wasn't a big deal. And later on, I got a uh, off of eBay a uh, 520 STE. 
Now the E stands for enhanced, as in enhanced uh, colors and enhanced sound. And uh, they had a like a 15-pin joystick port. It, it was a uh, the same size as a DB9. The Atari 5200 has a 15-pin joystick port, but it's like an inch or two long. But this one's the size of the DB9, and apparently, it took it, you could use the controllers from the Atari Jaguar on it, uh, which I never knew. They released this before the Jaguar, so. There was that. They, I mean, they had more colors. I think the ST was limited originally to like 16 colors. Maybe it was 512. Really? No, I think it was 512, but you could only use 16 of them at any time. So they, ah, the okay. 40, so the, the E had 4096, but again, I think you can only use 16 at a time. Unless well, it's kind of like the Amiga with its 4096 4, colors. I think under most screen resolutions, you could only use 256 max. There was a ham mode hold and modify that mm-hmm. I think would allow you to see all 4,096, but hey. The Atari ST actually had three graphics modes. They had a low res, which I can't remember. It was like 320 by 280, 200, something like that. And you could use 16 colors. Then they had a 600 by 800 uh, graphics mode, medium res, but you could only use four colors. And then they had a high res one, which was monochrome. But, and of course, very few games use the monochrome mode. Because that was more for, like, people that were into desktop publishing and that sort of thing. And the, the Atari ST actually had a pretty decent desktop publishing following. There was a really good piece of software for it called, uh, was it Chemis? Calamus? Something like that. Which became a standard and eventually got PC versions. And um, Atari had their own brand of laser printers. And uh, a lot of people were using that, which was, uh, which was uh, interesting. The way the best way to describe the high res mode is kind of like the liquid paper mode on the uh, or digital ink of uh, say a Barnes and Noble Nook uh, as an e-reader. It was really that really crisp and clear. It was quite impressive for people that were doing that sort of thing. Fortunately, I did have a couple of games that ran on it, but and I actually from uh, Bumpus also got the um, from the bullpen also did get a monochrome monitor and a color monitor. Up until then, I had been running it on a TV, but. Uh, if you're gonna go with one of these older computers, by all means, get a monitor because it just everything just looks so much better. I mean, you might be paying a little bit more through the nose, but trust me on this one. Unless you can do a video update on it, which I'm sure you can. I haven't really kept up on the Atari ST stuff in years now, but uh, I love the machine. Um, there was a game called Star Glider, which I just loved flying around in it. I never really knew what the deal was with it because um, <clears throat> it was a piece of software I had obtained. So, but. It was it was kind of fun. Reminded me kind of like of arcade Star Wars that sort of thing. And a uh-huh. friend from the neighborhood came over one time, and I booted the game up, and the and the game says, sings a Star Glider dun, 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 from Rainbird Rainbird. And he looked at the screen and was listening. He's like, "Holy crap!" And the thing was, the audio was fuzzy, <laughs> but it was still really? for the time. Yeah, the, the, the digital audio was fuzzy, but for the time, that was some kick-ass stuff. I mean, nowadays, it's like all the games and stuff now. Nowadays, you kids have that crisp, clean audio, and back in my day, the audio was fuzzy, and we liked it. But, um, but yeah, it was, like, really impressive to them. And, and even though it was limited to 16 colors at a time, there were people had a lot of tricks to get around that. And uh, there was, like, dithering and, uh, oh, God, what was the other mode? There was one called Overscan. There was another mode, but I can't, the way they did it, but there was a paint program yeah, called... Yeah, Amiga had similar things like that, yeah. There was a paint program called Neochrome, which allowed you to get by some of these hardware limitations somehow. I don't know how it worked, but uh, it, it worked. 
it wasn't the easiest program to use. There was a, there were better paint programs um, available for it. I did have one program I had that I really loved was the Activision Music Construction Set, and uh, I didn't know anything about music, but I just loved just putting notes down on the staff and you know just creating stuff and not giving a care as long as it sounded good. So that was always fun to do, and mm-hmm. and I spent a lot of time on, of course, of CompuServe and Genie. I think more Genie at that point because I think Genie was the bigger uh, service with Atari at the time, and. Um, Downloaded some shareware games. Uh, there was some good ones. There was uh, who was the guy? Dave Muncy, who used to be on Atari Age for a while. I haven't seen him in a while, but he had like versions of Berserk and Frogger and Donkey Kong ports that he made for the ST. The Berserk one was really good. Well, they were actually all really good. Uh, he had a, an original title called Frantic, which was amazing, and um, Frantic with the uh, you know C K at the end, not just C. And um, ah. I, you know, I just loved it. And, and and I remember when I first posted on one of the local bulletin boards that I had gotten an Atari ST, and they are like, congratulations on getting a real computer. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> I hate that whole real computer shit. But then again, like I said before, rite of passage for the time. Yep, yep. All the Atari BBSs were gone by the time I got into BBSing in really? 1992. Yes, they were, weren't they? Everything was either, there was a... Uh, Mostly some kind of IBM compatible. There were three Amiga boards out there. There was Tower of High Sorcery, which was run by Sudden Impact, who I found out later was a senior at my high school when I was a freshman. Oh, wow. And there was Red Oracle, which introduced me to the internet because he had a Usenet feed on that board that would update six times a day. I think you were telling me and about the cool, that. The, the cool thing about that was uh, there were some friends from high school that I would just write old-fashioned letters to where we'd send each other old-fashioned letters in college. And uh, one of them wrote back to me and said, hey, we have this thing here at school called the Telnet or something. And if anybody can figure out how to contact us over it, it's you and Andy. Here's my email address. (laughs) And I looked at it and I said, well, that looks like those used that addresses I see. So just as an experiment, I sent her an email from the Red Oracle BBS using that address. And like the next day, I got a response from her and like three other friends. Oh, wow. So I was like, oh my God. So yeah, I've been on the internet since 1992. Yeah, it was a lot later for me, but. Yeah. So there was Red Oracle and then there was a third one called Agima. And that was the one that was uh, the longest lasting. Uh, And I remember Agima specifically because the. Sisop, uh-huh. the bit jockey, as he called himself, and his wife was a frequent poster on that board a lot, Mrs. Bit Jockey. And um, names are how can I put this delicately? They were sex maniacs. Really? And they were not shy about sharing it. They were always bragging about like what they would do and all this. I don't know. How come and I never met them? Because you weren't on the in the Amiga scene. No, I wasn't. <laughs> But yeah, but yeah, there was, it was like, basically if they weren't posting on the board, they were having sex with each other. Wow. <laughs> but, um, what was really cool. He hosted, uh, they hosted a, a BBS party once and, uh, the bit jockey said to me when I got there, he said, I got a question for you. What does Agima mean? And I said, it's just Amiga spelled backwards. And he said, thank you. You know how many people have asked me, what does Agima mean? Oh, jeez. Oh, Ah, the BBS days. We could do a whole episode about the BBS days. That party was right after I got my Amiga 600, actually. Yep. I brought that over, and uh, people were just crowding around me, like, saying, okay, here, make a copy of this. Make, you need this, you need this, you need this, you need this. 
and just loading me up with every piece of software under the sun, uh, some of dubious possible legality. You <clears throat> obtained them. And this is something that I have to talk about here. The Amiga 500 was probably, I want to say, arguably the most common one because it was cheap. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those all-in-one ones where it has the CPU and the keyboard in the same case. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, most of the expansions for it were external. There was a RAM expansion unit for it that went on the side. Yeah. Any hard drives you got, you had to put in an external case until somebody figured out a way to install an IDE port in the inside. And there was a guy at that BBS party who's who was really into graphics, and he had all kinds of videos that he digitized from TV that he was showing off. Hmm. And he needed the entire length of a bingo table, of a church bingo table, for his Amiga 500 setup wow. because of all the expansions he had on it. Like for the hard drives, the RAM expansion and everything. You know, it's it's interesting because I'd made mention about how uh, how bands were using the Atari ST as a music computer because of the built-in MIDI yeah. ports. Um, yes. But people don't realize is the Commodore Amiga was uh, really big for video and like use in public access TV stations. Uh, I remember TV studios. studios. I remember one time I was uh, flipping the channels and I came across uh, one of our community TV stations. It was the freaking Amiga desktop was on the screen. It's like the machine crashed (laughs) and I saw like the workbench there and I'm like, holy crap, this thing's running on a Commodore Amiga and it had run there like well into the nineties, like way up to the end of the nineties, I think. And, Dude, uh, that little that, that channel that the cable systems had that that was the programming guide where it had the little two squares on the heading and everything, and the squares would push up when the whole thing rolled around. Mm-hmm. That was broadcast titler apparently on the Amiga. And it's fascinating. I, there's a story where there's one school I think it's out in California is still running all of its functions like the heat and everything on a oh, Commodore yeah. Amiga. Yeah, an Amiga 2000 still, and. Uh, they made mention of the Commodore Amiga on an episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000. And they made mention of Video Toaster once, I think. And um, I think in one episode, Joel said, have you either any of you guys seen my, the mouse for my Amiga or something like that? I don't remember which yeah. episode that was. Uh, yeah. Well, the thing is, like, the Amiga was pretty widespread. Like, Disney Studios used it. Mm-hmm. Um, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, I think, they, had it on, they used it on uh, their set. But yeah, it was, it was everywhere really. And, uh, the TV studio at my college, it was, in fact, the entire journalism department at my college was basically Amigas. Uh, there was an Amiga 3000. There were a whole bunch of 500s for like digitizing and stuff. Mm -hmm. So they were everywhere. One thing I neglected to mention about the Atari ST is there was also a, a, a version called the Mega ST which is kind of more reminiscent of uh, com- like desktop computers these days where you have like like the main case with the hard drive and and the processor and the memory in it and the detachable keyboard. The Mega ST was like that. In fact, that's what the the warden, the sysop of the uh, Alcatraz BBS uh, was using. He used a Mega ST. Uh, he did not use an Atari-branded hard drive, which I can't remember the name. It was like the Atari File something. I believe he had an uh, ICD drive. ICD did a lot of stuff for the Atari uh, branded computers. Kids today can't ever relive these days of all these 16-bit computers with all we had, and nobody had IBMs that were expendable. Well, they had people had them. They just weren't the big force that they are now. They're not even IBM anymore. They're Windows computers. But um, it was a, a great, interesting time. It was a I guess maybe I'm looking back on it with uh, rose-colored glasses, you know. I mean, 
there was a lot of things that were incompatible. Like there, I was jealous that there were some yeah. games on the Amiga that I couldn't get because of my computer. And I know uh, there were some people that had there, some, there were some Atari games you couldn't get on the Amiga, and, but it was a, you know, it was an interesting time uh, to be in tech because that's the time when pretty much everything just sort of right. Just before things solidified into uh, the PC uh, Mac era. Yeah. Uh, there was a thing for the Atari ST called uh Ah, shoot, I can't think of the name, but it was like a, a box you could hook up to the ST and uh, put in uh, Macintosh ROMs and run Macintosh software on your ST. Oh, yeah. Uh, Magic Sack, I think it was. Yeah, Amiga had stuff like that where you could actually put a uh, IBM. I was going to say, there was an IBM one for the Amiga. Yeah, you could put, you could, there were several of them where you could actually put a 286 in your Amiga via the ISA port. What were some of the names of the IBM boards? I I don't even remember, but you could actually have an IBM CPU inside your Amiga on the bigger box Amigas like the 2000 and 3000 and run an IBM emulator and actually hardware emulate nice. uh, IBM compatibles. I was actually able to, to emulate DOS on my very basic 600. And the cool thing about, about the Amigas is, uh, speaking of which, is you mm-hmm. can actually, out of the box, they could read IBM formatted floppy disks, the 720 yep. kilobyte floppy disks. The ST disks. could as well. Yeah. And also because the Atari ST and IBMs had very similar disk formats, you could actually pop an Atari ST disk in <laughs> an Amiga and it would read as if it were an IBM disk. <laughs> I know I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to mention it again. I had this great prank program on my ST. It was an Amiga emulator and it would pull up the Amiga desktop. Oh, I think you showed me that thing. Yeah, and it would pull up an Amiga desktop, and uh, on it was an Atari ST emulator, and you would open it up, and it came up with a warning message stating, uh, running an emulator on an emulator? This is getting pretty weird. I'm putting a stop to it. And then there was a button that said, nice try. You would click that, and it would crash the emulator with a guru meditation. Ah, uh, yes. Have you told the story about what a guru meditation is? Why don't I do that? Uh, real quick, on the Atari ST, really none of these messages on any of these machines were very helpful. On the Atari ST, when something crashed, you would just get a series of bombs on the screen. And I guess the number of bombs and where they were located had told you something, but nobody ever knew. Yeah, on the Amiga, there were two different types of software failures. One that would give you a flashing yellow box. Uh, those were usually recoverable errors. And non-recoverable errors, you'd get a flashing red box that you would have to click on one of the mouse buttons to get rid of, and that would reboot your machine. And in earlier operating systems, ones before operating before Workbench Kickstart 2, the message would say uh, software error, uh, I don't remember the exact wording. And, well, I'll put it to you this way. With operating systems 2 and 3, it would say, like, task number, and it would give you a hexadecimal number, and then memory location, and then another hexadecimal number. And the older operating systems, instead of saying like memory location and task number, it would take those two numbers and combine them with a dot in between. And it would refer to that as a guru meditation. It would say like guru meditation number 0044A23.2344B, dot two three four four B whatever. And the story about that apparently is that when the people who originally made Amiga, they were working on the Joyboard controller for the Atari 2600. And if something went wrong during programming, they would make whoever's fault it was go sit on the Joyboard and meditate about what he did wrong. <laughs> I think that's the story there. 
But yeah, they took out the guru meditation for operating systems two and three. Having said that, I mentioned earlier that there are newer generation Amigas that came out probably around 2003 Mm -hmm. and uh, they use operating system four, which is made specifically for power PC processors. And that version of the operating system actually put the guru meditations back. (laughs) Nice. It didn't actually force the machine to reboot, but it would just pop up in a message. So I was really happy to, because I eventually did have one of those new generation Amigas. It was the, uh, the first ones were called Amiga one. They ran off of, I think G three processors, mm-hmm. which is what the then current Macs were running off of too. In fact, what a lot of people do nowadays is they find old iMacs, the old like translucent ones yeah. mm-hmm. and they hack them to run Amiga operating system four on them. And it works pretty mm-hmm. well. Apparently. Interesting. I had one of those and it was awesome because it was super fast. It could actually do things uh, that everybody else with real computers could do at at regular speed. Like I could actually encode an MP3 in a few seconds when on my Amiga 4000 with a 68060 accelerator, the fastest you could get for the Motorola chips, Mm -hmm. it would take like half an hour to encode an MP3. Decoding, it was pretty much real time, but encoding, it was a long time. One thing but, uh, man. you had mentioned the uh, the joy board after the the whole shakeup at Atari, Warner Brothers getting rid of them. The way I understand it, the guys who were com- do, trying to do the Amiga after they got let go actually started making controllers and games for the Atari Twenty Six Hundred to raise funds for the Amiga chipset. Ah, that's the way I understand it because it was the same people. I don't know how well that worked, but uh, the Amiga did come out, so it must have worked pretty well. Must have. So. With that having been said, why don't we just give a little, uh, take a little time here and then talk about some of our favorite games for the, uh, for our computers. Oh, sure, our machines. sure. Uh, you want to go first or? You... Oh, heck, I'll just start. I'll start with, okay. actually, I'm going to go from the bottom up. Okay. Four out of these five games are shareware in that, actually, no, three out of these five games I'm going to talk about are going to be shareware. So I'll start with those. There was Mega Ball, which was a breakout kind of game. I really loved that one. The graphics were amazing. It had all kinds of power-ups. Mm-hmm. Uh, the background music was great, too. They had uh, uh, The Amiga ha- popularized what's called mods, short for music modules, four-channel audio modules, usually made specifically for games, background music for games. One thing I loved doing on my Amiga was making my own mods. But there were some really good tunes in Mega Ball, uh-huh. and the sound effects were great, and especially because one of the brick types was a brick made of fire. And if you hit that, it would basically burn bricks around it. And if you had a bunch of fire bricks in one place, the whole massive fire that erupted looked really, really cool. And I think my favorite feature of that game was you hit P for pause. Mm-hmm. And I think the programmer had it set so that I think one out of every seven or so times that you hit pause, you'd hear a drum roll and a voice would say, your game is paused. And then there'd be this <laughs> big fanfare with applause and everything. <laughs> that was a shareware game. Uh, it only gave you a certain number of levels. Uh-huh. And if you wanted more, you had to fork over 10 bucks or something. And then there were two games from the same guy. The guy's name is Edgar Vigdal, who a few years ago sadly died from cancer. There were two deluxe games. There was Deluxe Pac-Man mm-hmm. and Deluxe Galaga. 
and he pronounced it Deluxe Galaga. So as far as I'm concerned, that's what the game is called. <coughs> and they were basically, hey, if he calls it that, that's the name of the game, period. He might call Galaga Galaga, but he called Deluxe Galaga Deluxe Galaga. So there. But what was cool about those, like Deluxe Pac-Man, mm-hmm. that one had all kinds of power-ups. You would have a certain kind of bonus prize that if you ate it, it would explode all the monsters on the screen. And one of the earlier versions of Deluxe Pac-Man, if you scored a certain number of points in a maze, the level would automatically end and you'd get a crap ton of bonus points and skip over to the next maze. So that was always cool. And Deluxe Galaga, it's Galaga, except it's actually fun. Oh, boy. There. I said it. I mentioned before how I don't like any of the Galaxian series. But there are power-ups, things that uh, fall down from the sky. There are pretty fun boss battles, actually. Mm-hmm. And both of these deluxe games, you can actually get on modern computers. I think Mac, PC, and um, iOS and Android. The deluxe Pac-Man is called Deluxe Pac-Mon, P-O-C-M-O-N. And Deluxe Galaga is called Warblade. It's the exact same game. The only thing is they don't at least on iOS, they don't work on newer phones because the newer phones are too advanced. And actually, um, we have an older iPad here that I actually had a uh, Warblade on, mm-hmm. and I managed to crank the score up to 5 billion points wow. before the game crashed after I upgraded the operating system. <laughs> One game, actually the only game that I got for my Amiga after I got the new PowerPC-based Amiga, and that's Wipeout 2097 which is kind of a 3D race game. That okay. I, that just blew me away. That's uh, It's on several different platforms, actually. Okay. There's a whole series. I was going to say, that sounds familiar. I want to think it was a PlayStation version of that. Yeah, I mean, I I would never say go to a racing event or watch it on TV because I really don't care to watch people go around in an oval for how long. Yes, as George Carlin once said, as we mentioned Driving before. Driving 500 miles in a circle does not impress me. Does not impress me. Yeah. And the other game that I want to mention in my first five, Desert Strike. Oh, yeah. you can't, Which yeah. I first played on the Sega Genesis, and I loved it. And when it came out on Amiga, I had to hurry up and go out and uh, download it on a pirate board. <laughs> <laughs> it was different from the Sega Genesis version a little bit, because first of all, I don't think the Sega Genesis version had this, but when you had POWs that you were going to rescue, on the Amiga version, they would actually yell up to you. Yeah, I don't think the Genesis did that. And you could tell that the game was programmed in um, England because they had British accents. Right. What's all this then? Lion gets. And one thing that I didn't like about the Amiga Desert Strike, though, was that you couldn't control the inertia. Uh You could in the Sega Genesis version. You could select, like, whether it kind of moves around because of inertia. Or stops on a dime sort of thing. Stops on a dime, yeah. You couldn't do that in the Amiga version, but it was. I still loved it. Uh, I got a trainer for it so that I could play all the way through, except I could never, ever, ever beat the boss character at the very end, ever, even with a trainer. I don't remember there being a boss in that game. Yeah, it's obviously Desert Strike is loosely based on Operation Desert Storm. Right. But the boss character looked more like uh, Momar Gaddafi. Hmm. But yeah, that was uh, the very final battle. Thing is, he always got away. I could, even with unlimited. Oh, I know what you're fires. talking about. Yeah, he's like in a boat yeah. or something. Or I think he was in an airplane, actually. I think, but I think I know what you're talking about. I think. Yeah. 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 Okay. And from what I understand, Desert Strike was the last game that Electronic Arts published for the Amiga before they stopped supporting Amiga. And the next game that they were gonna be doing was NHL hockey, but it never came out. You were pissed about that. 
I because I NHL hockey I still love on the Sega Genesis. But yeah, and speaking of which, one of the reason that Electronic Arts cited for no longer supporting Amiga was software piracy. Yep. So it never happened on Windows, really? <laughs> now, was that common with uh, Atari ST developers, too? Yeah, there was a lot of piracy going around. And Were they scapegoated piracy, even yeah, though it I mean, was, that was just the, as rampant? That's the main reason uh, The main reason given why uh, the Atari 8-bits uh, eventually stopped uh, getting support was because of the piracy. Yeah, the Amiga developers were like, oh, software piracy. It's like, come on, really? The piracy isn't just as rampant with PCs. Well, it makes you wonder so. about market share for these machines, though, if that's their uh, if that's their, well, their thing yeah. too. So, well, the problem is, most of us who were into the Amiga, we were in college, we couldn't afford yeah. stuff. Yeah, and of course, people say, "Well, if you can't afford it, then don't." Well, the thing is, either way, they're not making money. Yeah. So, so what about you and the Atari ST? Well, some games that I really liked here, and all of them are actually ones that I purchased. I'm going to start off with Populous. Populous is probably the earliest what they call God game, where uh, you are controlling your fault fo- well, not controlling, but influencing your followers to build villages and um, eventually defeat the, <laughs> the followers of the other god. And um, you could raise lower levels of, of the land and create floods and earthquakes and have volcanoes erupt and all sorts of fun stuff. And I think it's one of the best games ever. Uh, I don't know if it is the best, but it's pretty up there in my esteem. Uh, the game gets really ultra hard later on. I can't figure out how to get past <laughs> some later levels, but uh, but I really enjoyed that one. Um, I just love, I think it has a lot to do with just like manipulating the land so that you can build stuff. It might just be the OCD in me on that, but uh, I really enjoyed Could that. Uh, another one is Gauntlet 2. Interesting story about how I purchased that one. I was on a bulletin board and somebody was selling it. And I'm like, okay. So I drove over to his house, which is on the south side of Chicago, and uh, went, to, went into his house and picked it up. And uh, But uh, this, I think it's the only time... I, I went to a person's house to buy something, but uh, it's a totally legal copy. And uh, I'm not a huge fan of Gauntlet in the arcade, and I'm not a. Yeah. But the thing is, with Gauntlet 2 on the Atari ST, it was a fun party game. And if you had a device, there was a two joystick adapter that plugged into the printer port on the ST. And if you had that, you could play full four player Gauntlet 2 on the Atari ST. I don't know if it was like that on the Amiga. I, I want to think of what they had an adapter. I don't know. But there were other games uh, for the Atari ST that used that as well. I don't remember what they were, but uh, I remember having so much fun with my cousins and my brother playing Gauntlet 2 on that thing. And um, that was a really good port of it. It's probably the best home port of that game, I think. I'm going to go also with Falcon. Falcon is a flight simulator, and I've mentioned it before. And I'm normally not into that sort of thing. And I got really frustrated when I first started playing this thing because it's like I'm more of a get-up-and-go-read-the-book-later sort of thing. And I couldn't do anything with it originally. But then I was looking through the manual, and the manual was horrible thick. And I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm going to have to read this whole thing. And I read just enough uh, and studied the uh, like the, the keyboard layout diagram. And uh, after I got down some of the uh, the functions of it, I had so much fun with that. It is really realistic, but it is so much fun to go around and bomb things and shoot down other airplanes and that sort of thing. And it was really fun. I had a lot of fun with that one. And again, all of these are ones that I've purchased. Another one that I really liked was uh, Zach McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders, a great LucasArts title. 
It's uh, an adventure kind of along the lines of like King's Quest and Police Quest and all those from Sierra. And uh, basically you play the part of a tabloid reporter trying to stop an alien invasion from turning everybody on the planet stupid. And uh, there's a lot of things about conspiracy theories and and pseudoscience and stuff like that in there. And uh, You love conspiracy theories. Oh gosh, I do. This is well before I even got into any of that. But... Um, I just had a lot of fun with that. It was uh, it was really awesome, and he had to do stuff like uh, get like a stale loaf of bread and um, use it to bang on someone's door and just like really really bizarre stuff. And um, the copy protection on that was interesting because it was um, I mean you you flew all over the world and then eventually to Mars. And uh, when it asked for a passport, you had uh, had to refer to a code on the document that was included, and it was like on like a really dark red paper with black print. So if you had vision problems, you were screwed. But uh, that was so they prevented copying. But uh, that was an interesting way of, um, of um, you know. Celery salt? Oh, my daughter loves celery salt. She puts it on everything. That was an interesting way of copy protection. And uh, I think another one I'm going to go with here. I'm going to go with Lamatron 2112. Ah, yes. I had that on the Amiga. That was really good. It was recently just ported to the Atari Jaguar, uh, actually, on a cartridge with uh, Attack of the Mutant Camels and one other game. I can't remember which one. But uh, that is probably the, my most favorite play on the Robotron formula I've ever Wait, hold played. Wait, Oh, God. This week in Robotron. But yeah, I mean, it, it's Robotron, except that you're a llama and you're shooting things like Coke cans and floppy disks and all these other things. And you got so many different, there, there's so many twists on the on the Robotron formula. Like at one point you're like shooting like at green porcupines. And when you shoot them, the, the spines come out and they shoot. Uh, eventually there'll be like lasers floating around that will light up the screen after a while. And then you got boss characters, like there's a one that's a huge toilet that's shooting out crap and uh, toilet paper after you and then there's a bunch of power-ups like super uh, super shots and three-way shots and uh, one-ups and whatever and there's eventually an end game boss at level 100 which i can't remember what it was i don't think it was the toilet but um it's a really fun game i think it's also available on the amiga and there isn't a there is a pc version of it as well but uh if you can get a hold of this one at the very least in emulation for the pc uh, give it a shot. It's really fun. You could play it one player, two players at the same time or with an AI droid. And um, it's the same guy that programmed Tempest 2000. So that must be where the AI droid in Tempest 2000 came from. So uh, I love that one. That was that one's really fun. I mean, I got a few others here I could mention too, but uh, had a lot of fun with that machine. I really did. And I wouldn't trade my experiences with that for anything. And I'm sure you would probably say the same. I play a lot of this stuff in emulation these days. And while emulation is really good, it, emulation, we, we say this all the time, even with the arcade games we talk about, emulation is just not the same. It just doesn't give you the same experience. So the other five I'd, I'd like to discuss, uh, actually, let me get to the first two that I think are terribly overlooked titles. There's a racing game out there that was actually my personal favorite racing game on the Amiga, the ones that I played. I've played... Uh, Outrun. Mm-hmm. Uh, Outrun wasn't very good on the Amiga, actually. There was a Lotus. Uh, there were three Lotus games. They were all pretty good, but not the best. Uh, there was a Formula One game as well. I don't remember the full name of it, but the one that I liked best was called Vroom. I've heard it of that was one. Pretty simple. The graphics were were very simple, but the thing is, it was very playable with a joystick. 
it controlled really, really well. And I, I just really liked it a lot. And the other one that I want to talk about that's severely overlooked and, and unfairly bashed is Bob's Bad Day. Bob's Bad I've heard of that one. And now why was Bob having a bad day? Because if I remember correctly, a wizard disembodied his head. <laughs> and you had you were playing as Bob's head, and you had to reunite Bob's head with Bob's body. And you did that by going through... You know in, in Sonic the Hedgehog, the original one, between levels, you'd have that little rotating maze thingy? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what Bob's bad day was. It was oh. that. You'd uh, rotate the maze, go through... If you know how to play that level in Sonic the Hedgehog, then that's how Bob's bad day plays. It looks like that. It plays like that. It sounds like the arcade game Camel Tree. Might be. I don't know. The whole thing is you have to go through several levels of that, and there comes a point when... Bob's body is in one of those revolving mazes and you have to coax Bob's body into the exit that you leave the maze from along with you. Ooh. And I think the final level of the game is when you reunite the head with the body, like fully functional. Uh, I never made it that far in the game, but I thought that was just the coolest thing in the world because, Hey, first of all, I got to play part of Sonic the Hedgehog essentially on my Amiga. And second of all, it was the part that was really, really cool. So I, re- I really liked Bob's Bag Day a lot. And because we are technically an arcade podcast, I have to go with Clax. Clax is, I loved Clax so much on the Amiga. In fact, for the longest time, I thought it was an Amiga exclusive title. I didn't know it was an arcade game. I didn't know it was out on other platforms. But Clax on the Amiga is the most full-featured version of that game. It has so much cool stuff on it. It has great music. It has a narration in the intro screen. And so many graphical touches that are not in any other version, including the arcade version. Interesting. It plays the exact same. It looks just like... Like, if you were to look at that, you'd say, Oh, yeah, that's Clax. I played that in the arcade. It looks pretty much like it. Well... If you play a lot of clacks in the arcade, then you play it in the Amiga, you're going to see a lot of improvement on the Amiga version. So, yeah, clacks, that's probably my favorite arcade port, uh, even more so than Pac-Mania. Hmm. Hmm. And, of course, no Amiga top 10 list would be complete without... In fact, these are actually two separate games, but I'm kind of going to group them together here. By Digital Illusions, there was Pinball Dreams and Pinball Fantasies. Mm-hmm. And it was it was just mind-blowing to watch pretty much real-time pinball on your Amiga with scrolling... Scr- well, no, actually... Well, yeah, scrolling. Yeah, with vertically scrolling screens and just the, the, the attention to detail. Uh, there was another game by Digital Illusions called Pinball Illusions, which I think was exclusively for AGA Amigas. I never had that one but I do remember one of the Amiga magazines was just drooling over it and saying how, oh, you should see this. Just the ball itself is made of 256 colors. And there was also Slam Tilt, which actually came with my Amiga 4000 when I bought that used, but I could never get it working. Uh, there were a lot of pinball games, but I had Pinball Dreams and Pinball Fantasies, and I played the hell out of them. And you can actually download those on modern platforms. Uh, I know I, I have it on my Mac. I have one of those on my Mac. They're available on iOS, probably Android. They have uh, two different modes, by the way. There's classic mode that makes them look just like the Amiga version. And there's regular mode, which plays the exact same, but it looks a little bit fancier. And probably, um, I don't know if I want to say this is my number one favorite game in the Amiga of all time, but it's definitely requisite. 
that you put this on a list of Amiga games. And actually, a lot of platforms had it, and that's Lemmings. Ah, uh, yes. In fact, that was on my list for the Atari ST. Uh, uh, no, no, no. Ah, Lemmings. Aha, uh-huh, Lemmings. Lemmings, those of you who never played it, uh, which is probably very few of you, uh, there are these... It's a very high-res game. You have these little blue, these little lemmings that are dressed in blue, and they have green hair. And you have to help them get to their little lemming temple or something. And they're just basically walking in a straight line across whatever terrain is presented to you. And you have to actually bless them with certain powers. Like there are powers to make them dig a hole. There are powers that make them build a staircase. Stand in or, place, blow up, yep, uh, pound and, walls away, dig down at an angle. Yep. And basically you have to bless the lemmings with those powers so that they can make their way over to their little temple thingy, whatever it's called. <laughs> there are so many things that were attractive about it. The graphics are fantastic. The music was catchy. It's not the greatest quality, but the music was pretty catchy. And the voices. Mm-hmm. At the very beginning, you hear someone say, let's go. Mm-hmm. And if a lemming is about to explode, oh, no. I actually took the samples and slowed them down once. It's all like just some woman saying, let's go. <laughs> oh, no. And I, what my favorite thing was uh, sometimes when a lemming dies, it's like, yeah. If you slow down that sample at normal speed, it's somebody going, (laughs) One of my favorite things about Lemmings, you brought up the graphics, but the animation, the the Lemmings themselves are not much bigger than like a 12, maybe 14 point font, uh, like like a capital K, for example. But the animation on on these these little characters was just astounding. And it is it is fluid, and they do a lot. And the, each of the in, even the lemmings have personality, and it's really hard to do with a normal video game. But do it with a with a character in a normal video game. But to do it with a character or a group of characters that little is an achievement. There's not much to them, but they're the cutest damn little things. My favorite part about it, though, is actually that you can see little strands of hair bump uh, yes. like bouncing up and down when yes. they walk. Yes. I know. It's it, like I said. It's amazing what they did, and every version of this game has that. No matter what the resolution of the game is, everybody's had to have played it. There was Lemmings. Oh no, more Lemmings. Lemmings two. A couple of months ago, uh, the uh, Lemmings two of the tribes. Those oh, the tribes, which I've never played, by the way. Uh, a couple of months ago, uh, Lazy Game Reviews on YouTube did uh, some of the Holiday Lemmings discs that were out. Yeah, those are basically just extra levels, right. really. And there were so many levels and to do. I mean, there was, there was no way you're getting bored with this game. And it had a password system so that you could uh, come back in at a later time. I think they also had a save system as well. I might be wrong. But um, I mean, they were out for the ST, the Amiga, the PC. I think the Mac, it was on the Mac. You could get it anywhere. And then, of course, there were all, there was always, you know, as with everything, there were competitors and ripoffs of the thing. But Lemming stands alone. Is, uh, it's uh, probably the most unique puzzle game ever created, in my opinion. Uh, it yeah. is definitely a puzzle game. And there were homebrew spinoffs of it, too, oh, such yeah. as Lem- Lemmingoids was one of them, which was just asteroids. But instead of asteroids, you're shooting at lemmings. Mm-hmm. And there was Operation Lemming, which I think was made with shoot 'em up construction kit. I remember the description of that game was something like, well, you've now rescued them. Now kill the bastards. <laughs> awesome. So I guess since you talked about Lemmings and Lemmings was on both of our lists, I might as well finish up my list here. 
Yes, please do. You'd had Clax on your list, and I actually originally had it on mine, so I changed it out for another game I totally forgot about and just remembered. So I'll start with that one. It's a whiz ball. You got this ball that's bouncing around, and the object of the game is to shoot the bad guys and collect paint to restore uh, color to the landscapes. And the way you do it is you would shoot a bad guy and it would come up with a bubble, and then you had a meter at the bottom of the screen, and um, for each bubble you collected, it would like advance it one, kind of like uh, the uh, the power-up system in Gradius. It, it kind of worked that way. And then you would hit like the space... No, no, you didn't hit the space bar. You wiggled the joystick back and forth to select it. One of them would give you control over the ball moving left and right and up and down. And you had to get those first so that you had complete control. And then you would have to get like a pink jar later on when you would shoot more of these things. They would drop paint. You had to collect them in the jar or whatever. And uh, that was a real fun game. I could never make it past the first level. Because it was just that complicated, but it's a really fun game. And uh, there was a version of uh, a remake of it for Windows a few years ago, and um, it uh, remains uh, remains faithful to the original concept. Another one I like is Xenon, not Xenon 2 Mega Blast, which almost everybody loves, which is a great game. But I prefer Xenon because it actually has, I think, a little more variety um, in the fact that you can switch between a tank and a, a fighter, and uh, it's pretty hard game. It took me a long time to get past the first level, but uh, I uh, once I did, was able to do that, I had a lot of fun with that one. And the last two are actually by the same company, FTL, on my list. Uh, one is Oids. I believe I mentioned them in our gra- that game in our Gravatar episode. And the game is basically Gravatar combined with Choplifter, where you had to destroy like all of the enemy installations and then rescue robots off the planet and then dock with your mothership to get them off, and gravity plays a huge role in it. Uh, you have to refuel your ship every now and then. Um, one of the great things about it was it came with a construction set, so you could design your own levels. That was always fun. And uh, we were talking about uh, Lemmings and how the characters had uh, personality. The little robots in this game had personality too, and you would, you know, destroy the prisons that they were held in. So if you like, uh, if you like Gravatar-type games, you'll love Oids. It's great. The one that most everybody loves, but uh, is maybe an acquired taste for some, uh, is Dungeon Master. I bought this one, and I was playing it and not really understanding how to play. But then eventually I found out how to use the, the spell mechanism and all that. I have a hard time reading manuals, uh, you know, ODD. No, not ODD. ADD. I am ODD. Yeah, you know me. And I'm also ADD. So uh, and once I figured out how to do that and uh, some, and figured out how to do the whole character selection thing, I mean, what characters to select to, for your party and all of that, it became a fun game. Never completed it. I don't think I even got halfway through the game, but uh, I enjoyed it, and I thought it was, uh, was quite fun. Never played the sequel. I think there were a couple sequels, actually. There was Dungeon Master 2 and... Uh, no, it was Dungeon Master 2 Chaos Strikes Back, but I think there was also a level pack for the first game. I don't remember, but uh, but I enjoyed that one. But uh, I, I think out of all of them, I probably enjoyed Lemmings the most. <laughs> but um, all in all, I mean, there was very few games for the Atari ST that I had that I, I just didn't like um, at all. But, you know, there were a few. Most of the games that were actually Atari branded weren't that great. The exception of uh, Crystal Castles on it was really good. But uh, other than that, I didn't... Tempest on it was poor. Didn't care for Robotron on it. I would play Lamatron instead. Star Raiders was pretty... It wasn't bad. I liked it, but it wasn't really great either. 
Speaking of Crystal Castles, I totally forgot about this when we did our Crystal Castles episode. There was a whole series of oh. Bentley Bear uh, educational games for the ST put out by Atari. Really? Yes, and I totally forgot about that. I'd never seen any of them, but I remember hearing about it, and I was looking something up recently, and I'm like, oh, crap, I forgot about that. Yeah. Which totally supports those who say that if Atari were to have a mascot, it should have been Bentley should've Bear. should have been Bentley Bear, yep. So, yeah, I'm uh, going to see if I can't find some of those and check them out, see what they're they're all about. But, yeah, they were Bentley Bear educational games, which, if you're going to do educational games, what better character to use? Leisure Suit Larry. Yeah, that game is educational. It's kind of a what not to do when you're looking for love. So In several wrong, wrong places. places. That was going to be on my honorable mentions list, along with... Uh, Three Stooges, Blues Brothers, Archer McLean Presents Pool, Cool Spot, Gloom Deluxe, Monty Python's Flying Circus, oh, Tetris Pro, one, and yes. Walker. Yeah, Monty Python's Flying Circus was fun. I, you had, I played it with a trainer, though, because it, that is an insanely difficult game. I think that's, uh, I'm, that's pretty much all of my, uh, everything I got to say about my Atari ST and yeah. you know, those days. It, it, you know, it, was a, it, was a, it was a great time to be alive for tech, as I was saying, and... You, you can emulate these games and still play them, which is great, yeah. but it, it... Yeah, the Amiga, you couldn't emulate that for years because of the custom hardware, because mm-hmm. you know, most computers just have one main processor. The Amiga had several. There was this, in addition to the Motorola CPU, there was also a separate processor for graphics, a separate mm-hmm. for sound, a separate to handle memory, a separate one to handle screen switching. Like, everything was farmed out. Which is why on a 68,000, like, 7 megahertz machine like mine, I could run circles around the gateways in the computer lab at school that had a lot more processing power. And because of that architecture, it was very difficult for somebody to come up with a workable emulator. I mean, of course, mm-hmm. they're rampant now. Oh, right. Everywhere you go, there's a version of Win- of uh, Universal Amiga emulator, or Ubiquitous, I think it's called now, Amiga emulator. You can even get that on Android, for God's sakes. Yeah, mm-hmm. I haven't used any like computer emulators on my phone because I'm like thinking, how do you do the keyboard? Yeah, unless there's a pop-up or something. Which seems like it would get in the way to me, but that's just me. Yeah, I mean, especially if you have to do a reset combination. Like, how do you do Control Amiga Amiga? Unless they support Bluetooth keyboards, but that kind of negates the purpose of having it on a mobile device. I don't know. Hey, since we're wrapping it up, let's talk about wrapping up our lives with these computers. At what point was the Atari ST no longer your primary computer? It was a long time ago. Um, there was a time about maybe 11 years ago where I was using both the ST and my IBM PC about the same, uh, at the same time, maybe not the same amount of time, but at the same time. But then World of Warcraft came along and the Atari ST went bye-bye. Eventually ended ah. up selling off all my Atari stuff on eBay and all my Atari ST stuff on eBay and... Uh, I think at that it was about that time I got my first Atari 8-bit computer, the 600XL, ah. which you now have in your possession. Yep. And um, but uh, yeah, that's uh, that was the end of it. It was. Yeah. I just couldn't justify holding on to it anymore. You know. Was, yeah. So like I said, I got my Amiga 600, my first Amiga, probably about 1993, and sometime before I graduated from college, I had claimed an Amiga 500 from the school when they were. I think replacing them with Macs and uh, one of the journalism professors like called me up one day and said, Hey, you can take whatever you want. If you go through the hard drives and tell me what's on these things. <laughs> and, uh, and actually our friend, our friend Cracker Jack grabbed their Amiga 3000. Oh, wow. I think he still has it too. Wouldn't surprise me. I actually sold that 500. I grabbed, I sold that to Cracker Jack cause he wanted to give it to his nephew. Uh-huh. Shortly before I got married, I got an Amiga 4000 
for about 500 bucks. I got it used off of eBay and got a whole ton of software with it and a CD drive and everything. And I should mention this, the Amiga 4000 casing is built such that most CD-ROM drives couldn't fit inside it. They would stick out by about an inch or two oh, wow. in, in the front. I happen to have one that fit perfectly. So, oh, geez. So that, that, was, that was nuts. Um, and when the next generation Amigas came out, those were freaking expensive. Uh, I think it was early 2004 when I invested in a Micro Amiga 1C. I have a picture of that thing. It's about the size of a shoebox. Oh, wow. But man, it was lightning fast. It was amazing. And um, my Amiga days came to a somewhat abrupt end in 2006. I was actually thinking sometime, man, I'm trying to like do something in software development, learn how to program and everything, but the Amiga's not cutting it for that. Like when I was taking software development classes at Brookdale Community College back uh-huh. uh, when I lived in Jersey, I had to borrow my wife's computer to do my homework for the most part. And I even said out loud, I said, I think I should get a used PC or something so I can do this stuff. And uh, my wife said, well, why not just keep the Amiga for, and, ha- and use both? which I started to, but in 2006, I got the promotion of moving back to Chicago and my wife had to stay behind uh, to finish her master's degree. So I was living here. She was still living there and she wasn't employed at the time. So it was just my income and well, it was my full-time income and a couple of part-time jobs that my wife and I both had. Mm-hmm. And, uh, her part-time job screwed her out of a paycheck once and she had worked a ton of hours mm. and it was good. It's a, it was a pretty good hourly rate too. So we, we were missing a paycheck and well, we were afraid that we wouldn't be able to make rent. Mm-hmm. And I suggested, well, you know, the, the landlady's always been understanding, you know, when, whenever we had some kind of request, let's see if they can hold off for a couple of weeks on the rent. She said, no, we've never made that kind of request before and I'm not going to start now. So, I put my micro Amiga one C on eBay. I put it up for, I think like 900 bucks. I think I ended up selling it for 1300. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because by that time, Amiga one boards of any kind, they were no longer being produced and they were in huge demand. Mm-hmm. So anytime anybody saw one of those things up, they would just, they would be gone, just gone. So I had a really easy time selling that thing and, uh, I kind of regretted it afterwards because I had a used PC and I really hated it. I could, I cannot stand windows. I, to, uh, one of the reasons I bring my MacBook with me to work is that I can't stand windows and I need my lunch breaks. I sneak away and just do some Mac stuff cause I can't stand windows and when my wife and I got back on our feet, I said, yeah, I'm getting another Amiga one, but there still weren't any boards available. So I couldn't get one, but I, I needed a new computer. I didn't want a PC. So I got a MacBook, just be, partly because I do freelance computer repair stuff. And people would ask, do you do Mac too? And I always say, well, no, and I figured it was time to learn. So I gambled on a Mac and I fell in love with it and I never looked back. Having said that though. There's one thing that the Amiga has that just doesn't exist anywhere else. And I really, really miss it. And that's why I kind of want to learn Mac development so I can make it for myself. Hmm. There's a program called directory opus. The same people who did that also made a directory opus for PC. And I think might I know what you're talking I think you mentioned this on the uh, food fight episode. 
I probably did. Yeah. But the thing is, on the PC, it wasn't quite the same as it was on the Amiga. On the Amiga, you open up a program called Directory Opus. It'll give you a split screen. And in each window in the split screen, it gives you a directory display. And you could set one side of the screen up for one directory, another side for another directory, and you could easily copy and move files back and forth. Uh, you could highlight a file on one screen, click a button and view it, or do a text read on it. And you could configure the damn thing to do anything in the world that you wanted to do. And the reason Jimmy G is mentioning that is I had an Atari 7800. No, it was mess. It was mess that I was using on the Micro Amiga 1C. And I had set directory opus up so that if you clicked a button called Food Fight, it would launch mess emulating the Atari 7800 Food Fight. Nice. And man, there's nothing like that on the Mac at all where you could just open up a window and just easily move things back and forth, display files, play sound files in just one app. And I sorely miss that thing. Directory Opus, I'm going to say, is the killer app of all time. There, mic drop. Yeah, I couldn't tell you. I've never used it. And by the way, there are now boards that'll run Amiga Operating System 4. That's the next generation operating system. So you could, they're, they're in production again from various vendors, but I'm not going to bother right now. Partly because I don't want to spend that kind of money, partly because I just don't have room. And yep. speaking of which, the one of the big disadvantages of the Amiga being my one and only computer was because it was such a niche market, it was really it was a really expensive computer to maintain because all the peripherals for it were expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, the accelerators cost about twice as much as the actual computer. And man, it was it was rough. It was spending it was spending a crap ton of money on that thing. Was this did you find the same with Atari ST? I never really upgraded my computers. Everything I oh. had was pretty much upgraded when I got it. In fact, now that I think about it, the one that I got from the ST I got from uh, from Bumpus uh, actually did have two versions of TOS on there with a toggle switch. Now that I think about huh. it, but um, those yeah, are the that's days. Pretty much, that's uh, in a large nutshell my life on the Amiga. That's the second episode in a row you've used that in a large nutshell. Oh well. So I think we should probably thank some people. Oh yeah, thank you everybody. Thanks. Yeah. Um. I I have to. I, I, I apologize. I totally didn't have my episode notes, so I don't remember who our Patreon sponsors are at patreon.com slash pie factory podcast. So, uh, yeah. Um, let me see if I can remember them off the top of my head. Uh, thank you to, uh, uh, new balance stores, Phoenix and Atari bites and underground retrocade and, uh, Richard Valdez, D Alex, Greg Paulander, Jonas Rulo. Did I say Keith Sheehan already? Mm, I don't think so. Okay, well, even if I did, hey, thank you, for, thank you, Keith, for not only your uh, Patreon sponsorage, but also for uh, having us over to Shea Sheehan. And uh, let's see, Richard uh, Grounds. Tim Foley. Tim Foley, thank you. Richard Grounds, thank you. Rory, uh, Rory Charles, Charles Coleman. 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 Yeah. Michael D'Angelo, Art Guglielmo, Nate Lockhart. Uh, did I say PJ Steele already? Mm, you did I not. I might. Kyle Edder, Jonas Rulo, Greg Polandre, yeah, yeah, yeah. D. Alex, yep, thank you. So, thank you, everybody. Uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, if you know anybody else that wants to, to donate to the podcast, please do. Oh, I am riding Bike MS again this year. So if you want to Ooh. donate to that, uh, please, please do. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, uh, piefactorypodcast.com slash bike MS will get you there. There we go. That'll get you straight to Jim's donation page. And yeah, I think that's it. Uh, Jimmy G, uh, what games are we going to discuss for episode 92? 
Well, we're going to discuss uh, two little-known uh, game sequels. Uh, we're going to be talking about Super Xevious and New Ooh. Rally X. Oh, ho, ho. Yeah. So stay tuned for that classic episode. Hmm. Indeed. Indeed. Well, I guess uh, we will have to sign off. This is uh, Sean from Pie Factory Podcast and Autobiography of a Schnook. And this is uh, Jimmy G, and thank you for listening to our 16-bit memories. Indeed. Soda pop. Bye. This episode of the Pie Factory Podcast was edited and produced by Hyde St. Pierre. Opening and closing theme is The Happy L, composed by Sean Courtney. Follow the Pie Factory Podcast online via Facebook, on Twitter at Pie Factory PFP, or on PieFactoryPodcast.com. Support the show at Patreon.com slash Pie Factory Podcast.